Thanks for listening to Beyond Prisons. I'm Brian Nam Sonnenstein. In this episode, which we recorded back in May, my co-host Kim Wilson and I spoke with Rory Elliott and Woods Irvin from Critical Resistance's newspaper, The Abolitionist. According to their website, The Abolitionist, which is sometimes lovingly referred to as The Abbey, launched in the spring of 2005 as a bilingual publication dedicated to the strategy and practice of prison industrial complex abolition. It is distributed absolutely free of charge to thousands of people in prisons, jails, and detention centers throughout the U.S. who, in turn, share the paper with many more of their fellow prisoners. From analyses of racial capitalism and imperialism to housing, education, land struggles, mental health, confronting gender violence, fights to build life-affirming infrastructure for community, self-determination, and more, each issue is packed with fresh analytical articles, reflections, poetry, visual art, and organizing resources and tools for resistance inside and outside of prisons. This wide-ranging conversation touches not just on the history of this publication, but the role of history and historicizing in the journalism they produce. We talk about how the ethics of abolitionist journalism differ from that of traditional U.S. journalistic norms. We also discuss some of the pieces that have been published in the Abbey recently and the intentions behind their editorial decisions. Be sure to check out the links in the episode notes for information on the latest issue of the Abbey and how you can support the publication and its readers on the inside and outside. As always, before we dive in, I just want to give a quick reminder on some ways you can help Beyond Prisons reach more people and grow this platform. If you have a few dollars to spare, you can make a one-time donation or sign up for monthly donations at beyond-prisons.com donate. If you can't give but want to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen. This tells the algorithms that we're good and shares the show with more people. You can also just tell your friends, family, coworkers, and comrades about the show, too. That's all for now. Thanks for listening, and much love to everyone out there. Be safe. Here's our chat with Rory and Woods. Thank you both again for joining us. Uh, we're thrilled to have you here. I think a good place to start, um, if you know either one of you or, or both of you want to just sort of give us the basics on the abolitionist for anybody out there listening who is maybe not familiar um you know how did the abolitionist start when did it start maybe a little bit about the legacy uh that it's drawing upon in this type of a publication um and you know just sort of tell us the background of of the publication i think that would be a, a good starting off point Thank you so much for having us. My name is Rory. So the abolitionist newspaper is Critical Resistance' longest standing project to date. Um, so it started in 2004 out of the Oakland chapter. Um, and it, it pretty much came out of the mail correspondence program. Um, yeah, the kind of way we frame it is it's now, obviously, there's people who were on it back then, but um, members were struggling with the volume of mail and not being able to like individually build with each person who wrote. And I think that's really still the case in our mail programs um, across our different chapters. Um, and so it really started as a newsletter when it came out. Um, and at this point it's a, it's a peri periodical, and um, it comes out around three times a year. 
Um, it's, it's like pretty, it's not super thick, but it's, um, it's sizable and it's both in English and Spanish. Um, yeah, we send it to thousands of prisoners in jails, detention centers and prisons and it's always free. Um, and we have like a couple hundred outside subscribers that keep it free for people inside. Um, so yeah, that's kind of some of the kind of some of the history. Um, the main goals were to get more prisoners involved in abolition, um, to facilitate and foster two-way communication across prison walls, um, instead of just like individually responding to have mm -hmm. something and uh, be an active source of self-determination. So creating shared analysis, consciousness and struggle. Um, and also also a main use of the papers is the organizing tool. So people people use it both inside um, and outside in, in their organizing. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of some of the context kind of stuff we say about the paper to historicize it. Fantastic. Um, can you tell us like a little bit about who contributes to the paper um, and sort of like the the structure of the content in terms of like I, you know, flipping through the most recent uh, issue you have coming out, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of uh, writing in here as well, a lot of different um, sort of coverage. Can you just walk people a little bit through, you know, what, what they could expect to find uh, if they open up The Abolitionist and who is contributing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's an, it's an inside-outside publication in nature. So it's written by folks on the outside and folks on the inside. Um, and uh, a lot of our authors are outside of prison, um, but we facilitate engagement um, from folks on the inside um, in, a, in a variety of different ways. So um, the new, it's not like new, new, <laughs> but the new structure of the paper um, is like a hybrid with a themed feature and we have regular columns. So we have an inside outside fishing line um, and we also have kites to the editors, which come from folks inside and inside outside fishing lines, connecting an outside organizer with an inside organizer to struggle on a topic together. Um, and we're kind of developing that as a as an organizing tool um, and seeing the different ways in which we can kind of do that work. Um, obviously, in the constrictions of uh, prison censorship. Mm. Um, and yeah, and Kites to the Editors kind of has, uh, generally has like pieces that are full length um, by prisoners themselves. And then one of our columnists is Stephen Wilson um, in prison in PA. Um, and Stephen um, or Stevie writes 9971, which is uh, referenced in, in honor of Attica. Um, and it's, uh, it's prominently around study. Um, so yeah, usually usually the paper is, is around a theme issue. So our most recent one is neoliberalism and fascism in relationship to the PIC. Um, and we can when we get to that, I think Wes can kind of talk about that the feature piece, which was something that they wrote, mm -hmm. um, and kind of what that was. And our last one was pandemic as portal, um, which is taking from uh kind of looking at the pandemic as an opportunity for the left to you know take advantage of the crisis and and push for a more free future um but yeah so it's, it goes on themes and then things kind of correlate to the theme it's mm -hmm. been really cool 
sometimes like uh, we try to bring it into the organization as a study tool also and something that we have done in the past is um, all work on different visualizing maps where we like look at different pieces in relationship to the future theme and like columns in relationship to the future theme and kind of create like these visual maps of, of how different pieces are, are linking up with each other. Um, yeah, we have, a, we have a lot of amazing contributors that, that span different areas of struggle and study and academia and organizers. Like it, we try to keep it really balanced too. Wonderful. I hope that answered the question. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, no, that was that was fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, I want to uh, ask a different question now, and it's uh, it obviously uh, ties in with everything uh, you've said, but um, really to get us to think about how the ethics and assumptions of abolitionist media differ from traditional media, right? Um, and you know, one example, and this is something that Brian and I talk about quite a bit, um, not so much on, on the podcast, but we've talked about it, um, you know, behind the scenes and, and uh, in, you know, uh, different groups and what have you, is the kind of tendency that the media has um, to, let's say, and this is, you know, one example among thousands that we could have chosen, but, um, you know, they have a tendency to highlight someone's uh, legal conviction as part of telling the story, right? And, you know, we don't do that, right? We don't do that. That's not, that's not where we are in terms of our politics. And, you know, uh, when, you know, we're engaging with folks, it's not something that we're interested in. That's not part of the story. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, the ethics and assumptions of the abolitionist? So I'm going to just start with how we think about media um, as an organization overall, and then um, can get a little bit more into uh, media specific, like thinking specifically about the abolition. Um, so um, clearly for those of us uh, fighting the policing, imprisonment, surveillance, and state of violence more broadly. Um, we think about media as a terrain on which we struggle to inform people about our campaigns and projects, to influence decision makers, um, and to, uh, to diminish the credibility um, of our opponents, um, to um, create common, uh, to create shifts in common sense. Um, for the wider public um, in order to ideally galvanize them towards fighting for PIC abolition. Um, and so in, um, as part of shifting that common sense, um, in critical resistance, we use uh, media to counteract the dominant narratives and logics of the prison industrial complex um, while shaping the hearts and minds of, of people. Um, so we understand um, media as an institution that is an integral part of pushing the prison industrial complex or the logic 
um, that legitimizes caging, killing, and controlling people. Um, uh, but by per perpetuating um, like stereotypes around people of color, uh, poor people, queer people, trans people, and those who um, dissent, um, and uh, portrayal of those of those folks as predators, criminal, um, deviants, um, violent people. Um, so um, our work is to through the course of our camp, through the course of the duration of our campaigns and projects um, are to intervene um, in these narratives, um, counteract them um, and shift the stereotypes and messages in every way possible, both in terms of like who the actors are and where they're coming from, um, at least on our side, but also like um, those who mobilize the prison industrial complex um, and also uh, toward what end. Um, and like, we really want to, we, or we aim to centralize um, the, ex the centralize and humanize the experiences, resilience and leadership of people most impacted um, by policing, surveillance and imprisonment. Um, and this includes clearly prisoners and former prisoners, um, but also survivors of interpersonal and state violence like policing, surveillance, war and so on. So I think that there is um, a shift, the, the sort of um, the shift in common sense that we are um, trying to make um, both in terms of who, like, who are experts, who has, like, like, what the goals of something like a, a prison uprising or an uprising against policing are, um, uh, who are the, the main characters of those narratives and towards, um, like a, a, a reframe um, beyond what traditional mainstream media often attempts to do um, for both the people fighting for their freedom and the actual fight for freedom. Thank you very much. I really appreciate a lot of what you said there. Um, and I think it lines up with a lot of things that we've thought about <clears throat> over the years. I mean, you know, I think, my, you know, speaking about my own experience as somebody who started out as a, you know, who was a journalist before I was an abolitionist. Um, and as somebody who I think, and I see this with other people who are maybe in the beginning stages of, you know, seeing if they want to produce some sort of uh, media based in abolitionist ethics or principles or, um, you know, documenting the movement you know, there's sort of this desire to try to like re reverse map, you know, the traditional sort of ethics or values of, you know, U.S. traditional journalism onto this, uh, onto this work, which is 
as you described in many ways, like very problematic um, and sort of uh, counterproductive to the ends that we are trying to achieve. And I think that a lot of those things are very obvious, just sort of flipping through even your most recent um, edition. I think one thing, you know, to point out is that in all of the pieces, it, it really seems like um, there is this effort not to portray things as sort of like new and only in the now and sort of like detached from history. Um, you know, everything that I saw flipping through there is both connecting the present to sort of this legacy and this past of struggle. Um, and I think that also gives things sort of like a longer shelf life, uh, which I think is a really valuable part of the way that that you all are presenting this. And I just wondered, you know, if there's anything that you wanted to say on that, is that like an intentional choice? Is that just something that happens by virtue of the things that you're covering? Um, I, I just think that's such an important thing to do, especially when we're talking about like movement journalism. Um, and, you know, I think it's something that a lot of people who do this work could, could improve upon. Yeah. I think, I think for the, is that intentional? I think definitely, I think, you know, historicize, 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 like we're, you know, abolition as a contemporary movement, like has a long history in revolutionary organizing. Um, and I think we, you know, with the Abbey are making a case that the or, you know, the organizing that's happening today and the analysis that's happening today has roots in a long history. And um, that context is really beneficial for, for our analysis of conditions and our, you know, collective analysis on how to resist. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's it's really it's really important for us to to bring bringing in histories, um, bring in various contexts, internationalist in scope, um, to really situate what 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 the PIC is and what PIC abolition is, um, and I think yeah, Woods, if you wanna if you wanna speak more to that. Oh, I think that that was that was great, Rory. I think that um, yeah, uh, we definitely are intentional um, in the media that we produce um uh when like in order to combat um and sort of a historical orientation um we definitely want to as we was saying um frame our the organizing that we're doing and the assertions that we're making in a long legacy of radical struggle. Um, and I think being able to draw on concrete material um, work that radicals have done in the past um, to articulate the prison industrial complex, how it manifests and how it moves and how to fight it, um, helps give us a strong wealth of the an understanding around the scale of the PIC, the scope, um, the, the 
what we have in our toolbox to fight um, and what we can anticipate to sharpen, um, make our tactics more effective and sharpen our strategies. Um, and it also situates us in a long-term vision mm -hmm. um, as well as um, the commitment towards building that vision as we move forward. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> um, if I, I have like a somewhat of a quick follow up on that too, you know, just on the subject of histories and historicizing and thinking about, um, you know, creating these connections to the past. Um, you know, another thing that I think differentiates or is sort of one of these questions of, of an ethic um, between more traditional journalism and journalism, you know, from an abolitionist framework. There's the there's like a desire, or I guess it's easy for a lot of journalists to hide behind um, sort of an inability to fact check things um, in a way that is maybe more traditional. And a lot of that is obviously due to um, the institutional realities of the prison industrial complex, and in, in specific uh, when we're when we're talking about covering what's going on in prisons, um, you know things like individual testimonies or, you know, anything that isn't sort of deemed an official document. Uh, you know, if we don't have that kind of information and facts, um, then there's no way to sort of present that information to a reader. Um, and that in some ways doing so is irresponsible. And I think it's really easy to sort of, uh, you know, if you're thinking in the mode of sort of tra traditional U.S. journalism to go along with that and not sort of see what information and what narratives and experiences are sort of being left in the wayside, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I, I think that they're one of the, the diverging ethics between this kind of journalism and the way that it's practiced in more mainstream publications is this more capacious uh, record that you're building. Um, and sort of creating these uh, transcripts and these histories that otherwise aren't going to get documented in mainstream media because they don't meet, you know, these, these you know, subjective and superficial criteria. Um, so, you know, I don't have like a clear question to that, but I wondered if there was anything um, in your minds about that subject, about, you know, the, the verifiable and how... Um, you know, how you might approach that differently than, say, like a journalist for The New York Times, you know, not even just in what you're trying to accomplish, but <clears throat> in how you value that information. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, I want to say, I think, I think the difference between the abolitionist newspaper and any kind of, um, any kind of media, I think, that's not situated in, in the left, um, and even media that is, um, is that, you know, our, we, we run on a 17 week timeline. So we get an issue out three times a year if we're doing good as a collective, which we are right now. Um, so I think, I think like where, where, and I think this goes back to your, your last question, um, the paper rather than being necessarily focused on journalism is really, is really has to withstand three months or more of 
-hmm. shifting conditions um, and shifting analysis. So like, you know, this issue that we just put out was written on the heels of the, you know, um, folks mobilizing to the Capitol. And that moves really fast. So I think, I think the, the with like with Woods's piece, um, situating that in context uh, really delivers us past the moment and delivers us into um, having a piece that that can be read like months and months later and um, connect to the histories and connect to like possible shifts that we're we're analyzing in the future. Um, and I think with the with the with the vi uh, <laughs> verifiable um, stuff, I think that kind of that kind of comes into play also um, into a larger contextual analysis of conditions, um, opposition and resistance is, is, yeah, we're not trying to get a story out um, per se. We're trying to get uh, a moment in time, I think, captured and, right. and a lesson in time captured. Right. So that, so that people can review it, learn and apply whatever was happening at that point into into the present so i think there's one example is um i think directly speaking to that kind of like oscillation of of like verifiable evidence uh is that um there was a hunger striker in uh in portland at the multnomah county jail um and as as organizers on the ground um were trying to get the news out that this food strike was happening it was in it was like the press was like, well, we have to hear for three or more people, but the, the jail was completely stopping any ability for the striker to get news out or any other strikers to get news out. Um, so it took a really long time. And when that, when that uh, article was finally published, everyone who was striking got transferred to different jails and were separated in different units, um, which is, you know, a very classic tactic of, prisons and jails. Um, but yeah, we, we mentioned that and, you know, we didn't really need that verifiable evidence because it was a relationship between organizers on the outside and organizers on the inside um, that was that was making up that piece. Um, was like, what? how did that go? What was it like? What lessons have we learned? What are conditions? How are they transferable? I really appreciate, you know, Rory's response to that. Um, and particularly, you know, when you're talking about um, that this needs to transcend the moment that, you know, these issues uh, that appear in the abolitionists um, are, are not things that are, you know, today's headline, like they're relevant, you know, five years from now, they're going to be relevant. You know, it's like, you can go back. And I did um, in preparation for, for this episode and read things, you know, from a few years ago. And I was like, oh my God, this like, of course, this is still relevant today. Of course, it's still relevant today. And it's that kind of, you know, a different production schedule uh, than, you know, we're not working against these kind of tight deadlines um, and, you know, having to produce, uh, you know, to get it out tonight and things like that. Um, that also makes a difference, but it's also grounded in a very different politic around what, you know, this kind of work is. So I thought, I thought it was a, a wonderful question. I really appreciate, um, you know, your, your response to that. 
Um, I wanted to ask something, and I think you probably already answered this um, because I, I kind of heard uh, parts of this in, in your response, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Um, so I think one of the most important things that, you know, abolitionist media um, has the power to do is to help us understand what's happening around us, right? Um, and you already talked about how, you know, it gives us or helps us deepen our analysis of the conditions on the ground, right? Um, but also, and I, this is the part that, you know, I'm really interested in how these insights, you know, can then be translated into, you know, the way we change things, right? Um, so I'd, I'd just love to hear uh, from either one of you or both of you on, on that question. Yeah, um, I, I think, so as I was saying, for CR's um, orientation around um, doing, putting together strategic communications is to put together media interventions that propel a campaign or a political project forward. Um, and it, it, like in, intentionally. And so I think that in the, the shift in orientation that would be helpful um, to move the, like the political project of PIC abolition forward would be to, I think, follow either the arc of a campaign or the arc of a larger movement that is in in motion. So, um, so as like as has been stated before, um, less zeroing in on a day like a sensational headline um, and having more of an orientation that's um, highlights the individual or group of people who are most likely being most impacted and being criminalized in the moment um, and um, and centering their struggles for liberation um, and um, along the trajectory of that fight. Um, and I think just to to sort of highlight what Rory was saying earlier about what is verifiable or what counts as verifiable. Um, so for for us at Critical Resistance, the relationship that we've built with people who are inside um, is the sort of is the credibility that we base our output on. Um, and so like in in like the instance that she was mentioning, um, ideally would be enough. I was really thinking uh, along the lines of, you know, how do we how do we take these things? And I, you know, I think the best example um, that I could come up with from, you know, from the publication itself is um, the piece that appeared in uh, issue 33 um, regarding the, the land and freedom organizing for self-determination during COVID-19. 
uh, in uh, Michoacan, Mexico, right? And uh, that, you know, that piece illustrates, right, both the deep analysis around, you know, uh, or providing the context, right, telling us what was happening, um, the deep analysis of, you know, conditions on the ground, and um, how they used, you know, um, their thinking and all of this, you know, to to change the conditions, right? And then there's uh, the the last question in that piece, which I found really um, relevant to our conversation here, uh, had to do with the um, the use of their community radio station to get the word out, and through their, you know, how they were using media in that context, how, you know, they learned about other issues and the kinds of things that the central government was doing. So um, I don't know if that drills down, you know, too deep into um, specific, you know, um, into the specific, but, you know, that's, that's where my thinking was. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I love that you mentioned that piece. It's, um, it's such an incredible example of organizing and I think also that my yeah my favorite or one of my favorite parts of that piece is, is talking about the Fogata or the radio the community radio mm-hmm. um and I think yeah I know that Rust Belt Abolition Radio has this really amazing section on what they their dream for their radio and I think we have a similar one is um is um you know, countering the social, I think this is directly from their thing, but countering the social death sentences imposed on our communities um, and, and shifting shifting analysis. And I think where we've seen the, the Abbey actually be a tool like you're, you're getting to in terms of actually organizing, um, I think there's some different, there's a lot of different examples. I think one that's really contemporary is when we're looking at the 9971 column with Stevie. Yes. Um, he talks about, um, I think something that's so incredibly important about Stevie's analysis is talking about study as organizing, <clears throat> right? Like it, it is a critical, both a critical feature of organizing and also is organizing in and of itself. Um, and we are printing um, uh, this interview with him and Ian Alexander that really talks about his path of coming on to into an abolitionist analysis and and beginning study groups inside and like what it means and how hard it is and what materials you need and something that I think Stevie really drills into abolitionist movements and into the left more generally is that um, we need to take physical media seriously um, because access to the kind of information that I think the left has really embraced, which is mainly digital, um, leaves out those who are in the belly of the beast um, or the belly of the beast in the belly of the beast. So something I think that that's a really powerful element of the paper. Um, and we've seen that in in how uh, Stevie has, has developed study and now is sharing it with others through this column. And I think also we've seen in the past um, organizing around the paper um, during the California hunger strikes, the paper was a lot of the folks who were helping organize the strikes were Abbey readers. Um, and a lot of folks in Georgia in the early 2000s um, who went on a huge strike were also longtime readers of the paper. 
Um, so I think I think it's in those intersections where we see study as as a critical component of organizing, organizing in and of itself, and also um, helping folks gain uh, gain empowerment to to pull off, you know, really radical, like large scale resistance um, to prisons. And, and, and that's been really, I think, a really powerful thing to watch with the paper. And a reason why, you know, like some states don't allow it in, like North Carolina doesn't allow the paper in. Right. Um, Woods, I wanted to make sure that we had time to discuss um, the piece of yours that is sort of the lead feature of the next edition that's coming out um, on neoliberalism. Um, and, I, and I think this might be a good segue from our last conversation. You know, of course, I would love if you could give people sort of a preview of the piece and how it frames up the subject matter and the issue. But um, in addition to that, you know, I think one thing that the abolitionist does a really exemplary job of, you know, especially looking through this most recent edition is with, um, you know, creating sort of a culture of study and building understanding and building sort of like the intellectual capacity around these issues. Um, you know, a common trope or refrain that you hear from sort of abolition's many detractors, out, especially in media, among other journalists, is that, oh, you know, all of this stuff is so academic. Nobody really understands it. You know, it's disconnected from people on the inside, they don't know what fascism is, they don't know what neoliberalism is. And there's also this kind of implication that they can't understand it either, like it's above them. Um, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the, the condescension that I'm talking about, but um, you know, I think what this issue and, and these pieces do a great job at is not just, you know, like we talked about providing the context and doing this or that, but um, you, know, you have like a definitions section uh, in this paper, which I think is just wonderful. Um, because, you know, I think one thing Kim and I have, have talked about with a lot of like study groups and sending things inside is that, you know, sometimes people don't know some of the basics or, or some of the terms that are thrown around or some of the frameworks that are alluded to, or a book gets sent inside and maybe there's not so much support in helping people work through and think through the concepts. Um, so, you know, this is all to say, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about the piece uh, that you have coming up, Woods, and also this this um, eye towards like including definitions and producing this material in a way that um, is accessible to people who are or maybe still like in early stages or learning about some of these concepts. Sure. Um, so very briefly, um, my the the piece um, that uh, I put together. Um, is um, reflecting on the events of January 6th um, and doing a little bit of work to contextualize the phenomenon that I think a lot of people were remarking on, which was um, what the police were or were not doing um, during that riot. And just uh, zooming out and thinking about the ways in which the prison industrial complex is 
like, or the the it's rapid expansion um, emerged at the same time as neoliberalism did, um, and there there it, that its roots um, are intimately entwined with historical fascistic projects or projects that have a sort of fascistic orientation, um, as well as um, the ways in which internationally sort of more authoritarian populist movements have wielded policing um, and imprisonment as um, like a, as, a rep, as a repressive apparatus um, to stop or slow down radical shifts um, during a moment of economic destabilization. Um, and I think, yes, that is um, ambitious. Um, but I, as you were saying, we at Critical Resistance um, put a priority on political education um, and just touching back on or echoing what Rory was saying um, earlier um, as um, political education as um, integral to abolitionist organizing and advances that um, we want to make and that it is necessary to struggle with comrades um, both inside and out um, to develop sharp analyses around the prison industrial complex and the conditions that reify it, as well as opportunities to like what opp like opportunities that that could that open up that we can take. Um, or as Rory was also takes, um, talking about with the hunger strikes in California in 2011-2013, the opportunities that can be made um, through struggle. Um, and so I think that our orientation is not to shy away from um, com like complex uh, political topics. I think that even the articulation of the prison industrial complex in and of itself is a bit of a challenge to wrap our heads around um, as like as well as the project of PSC abolition but if like because we're serious about it and we're serious about doing that in partnership with people inside um, and with um, as many fellow travelers as we can, um, because we're serious about winning, um, we have to engage the complexity head on um, and then do the work that it takes so that people can be there with us. Thank you for that. I'm just interested in how you both came to the work. Yeah, I, I came to the work, I, you know, um, I'm pretty young, I'm 23, so which feels old for me, but it's not at all. Um, and I, I, I definitely am of the generation that was radicalized in high school through Black Lives Matter. And I think um, in well, when I was in high school, like 2014, it's so weird. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I think I think what what was really influential about um, PIC abolition was its its uh, really large parameters and it's really it's really complex understanding and it's it's um, it's like very clear call. I don't know um, in, in all the complexity and I uh, I would. I don't know. Um, for the media thing, like I, I work on a, a community college uh, school newspaper and would, you know, go like up to different events at the Dismantle Change Build Center, which was the former um, spot that uh, Sierra Portland anchored along with a bunch of other organizations and and go to go to their political education events um, the outward facing ones at least and and um, learn from the Karen Cops campaign and write about it for the newspaper and go to to um, uh, PSU and write about the, the disarm PSU campaign that was really getting a lot of uh, national attention I think after the murder of Jason Washington um, and basically making relationships with people who were either in Critical Resistance Portland or were like, really intertwined with it through all the friendships. I mean, like, it's a very small chapter. And I think most of them are. So it's a lot of like friendships and people are in different organizations with each other. Like people were in just like a lot of people who are in uh, Critical Resistance Portland were in Disarm PSU. So like um, stuff like that, I think just uh, relationship building and and finding that this work was what I wanted to dedicate my time to and, and to uplift the analysis and, and like really clever work on, on fighting, um, fighting like our enemies, our collective enemies, you know? So it's been fun. It's kind of fun to have come in it through kind of a media-ish thing, like trying to get more radical stuff in student newspaper. And then now I'm like helping work on the organization's newspaper, so. That's the fun path I think I've taken. That's amazing. And uh, wow, you said 23. I, like My youngest son is 30. So that really puts things in perspective for me. Uh, <laughs> but it's amazing to, um, to hear uh, how, you know, how we all enter uh, this space and uh, what brings us here, what motivates us, what keeps us here um, and, and those things, particularly, uh, you know, doing this, uh, this particular kind of work within a broader, you know, um, movement. So thank you for that. Woods, did you, um, did you want to answer? Yeah, I, I was doing, I started doing this work about, Oh, wow, 15 years ago, and um, in Chicago. And um, at the time, I was working with um, young people who were street based um, and houseless. And um, just the work of sort of constantly trying to disrupt the cycle of violence, um, specifically from policing um, and imprisonment that was occurring, sort of drew me right into a systemic analysis around it. Um, and there was strong organizing in um, Chicago at the time around 
the prison industrial complex. Um, and I think that with the, I think it was CR 10, which was um, Critical Resistance 10, it's like a, a 10 year anniversary conference in 2008, um, that really like animated the abolitionist work that was happening in Chicago and um, like animated the analysis, animated um, uh, the desire to, to start and escalate projects. And um, I was part of a few of like projects like um, that did work around transformative justice, that did work around getting um, young people out of prison, doing like regular core support, doing res regular visitation. And then um, I moved to the Bay, which is where um, Critical Resistance is headquartered. I joined the chapter um, there in Oakland. Um, and have been part of the organization since then. Fantastic, thank you. Um, I always uh, enjoy hearing, you know, uh, people's stories around how they, you know, came into this and because uh, we all have, you know, taken different paths uh, here and um, yeah. So thank you, I appreciate both of you for sharing that. I would love for you all just to tell folks uh, what's coming up next, what they should look out for, how they should find you, um, maybe talk a little bit about the subscription options for folks on the outside and the inside. Um, do, do the plugs. Let's hear it. Okay, the plugs. Um, yeah, so I'll start with uh, just a throwing out the subscriptions for folks on the outside. Um, the way that we're able to get free and continue uh, as, like since the founding of the paper to keep newspapers inside is um, having kind of a, it's like a mutual aid system of folks on the outside uh, sponsor a free newspaper um, per their subscription. So we have a variety of different like pay options. Um, so we have a single subscription, it's $10 a year and it supports two readers, one on the outside and one on the inside. Um, we have the $15 subscription, which is like a Maryland, we call it the Maryland Buck subscription. He was um, a contributor and, and reader um, when she was alive of the abolitionist, um, which is 15 and it supports three readers, um, two on the inside, one on the outside. And then we have like a $45 one. I just have to do this. With the $45 one, which is free them all, um, and it supports nine readers, so eight on the inside and, and one on the outside. And, and that's, that's really how we're able to, to keep this project going. Uh, we have 4,500 folks on the inside who are subscribed. And we know that the circulation is higher than the subscription amount because people pass the paper around all the time. Yeah. Um, which is another part of the organizing tool. And there's around 500 folks who make that possible on the outside. Um, so yeah, if you, if anyone wants to subscribe, um, I do, and I work on it. <laughs> so it's really it's really wonderful to get it like in your hand. Um, you can go to donatenow.networkforgood.org/backslash/abolitionistnewspaper, um, and it will give you options. Or you can go to the abolitionist. Um, it should be the first thing that comes up, and it's also um, 
in on the critical resistance website. You can find it through there. Um, and our next issue coming up is focused on uh, the defund movement of 2020. Um, so it has a lot of firebrand authors um, and a lot of really amazing analysis. And I think it should be out. I get my like timeline up. Um, it we're finalizing the first round of editing the pieces soon. So I think I think it'll be out in around June um, or July. Um, but yeah, it should be it should be a really incredible paper. Um, what else did I want to plug? Oh, and on the critical resistance uh, website, if you go, um, there is a Google form at the bottom of the abolitionist section where you can subscribe your loved ones, friends, comrades, or on the inside for a paper for free. Um, and that's, I think, a really vital way to, to get folks reading it and um, help spread, spread the word. Well, um, thank you both for, for joining us. It was, um, I really enjoyed this conversation and it was great to be able to meet you and, and have this conversation. So I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you both. Appreciate it. It's wonderful to, to talk with you. Thank you both so much. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Thank you.